Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Hey, hey, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have an awesome, super powerhouse of a guest, Aaron Huey, the co-founder and president of Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. Not only does Aaron have ADHD, or at least he was diagnosed, or at least they said he has this so-called disorder called ADHD, but no, man, this guy is a powerhouse of a leader, a speaker. He's also an addict since 2000, and he is making a huge difference in the world. He's been working with children, teens, and parents for over 18 years. After 10 years directing camps and empowerment programs around the world, Aaron opened Fire Mountain because he wanted to work with kids and families on a deeper level. Over the first few years of running programs like Teen Rites of Passage, the Warrior Phoenix Challenge, and numerous cries for help from parents, Aaron realized the need to turn his efforts towards teens struggling with drugs, alcohol, and the behaviors and issues related to addiction. An addict in recovery since 2000 himself, he felt the calling to put together an expert team and open Fire Mountain. His mission is to awaken confidence and leadership. It's not about being better, he says. It's about giving up the struggle to be different from who you are. Aaron's formal educational background is in acting. He graduated from the top acting school in the U.S., the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, in 1990. His skills in comedy and drama make him an influential speaker and presenter and a favorite among the kids. His confidence, compassion, and humor set the tone for deep healing and fun. Aaron is also trained as an EMT, a wilderness survival instructor and martial arts teacher, all of which, of course, he weaves into the Fire Mountain RTC curriculum. Can anyone say ADHD or perhaps, well, since that's a label, can anyone say, wow, this guy does a lot of stuff and he's making a difference. I'm so happy to welcome Aaron Huey. Hey, thanks, Roman. I appreciate uh, connecting with you again. You were amazing on my show and I'm just so happy to, to have an opportunity to shout at your crowd, man. Thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to hearing that again. It was such an inspiring conversation because you're an inspiring guy. I just want to say what you're up to in the world inspires me. I just want to let, have you let that sink in. Thanks, man. It really does. And so I want to, of course, talk about what you, the work you do with, with teens. And I want to get into some of your past, but really we're here because ADHD connected us, right? Yeah, so I'm, I always start out by saying what for you, what is ADHD? Uh, it was this thing that they started throwing around at me when I was in fourth grade. Uh, and this was in the seventies. And when I talked to my mom about it, she, she tells stories like when she would pass me around as a baby, uh, I would behave differently for every single person whose lap I was in. It's like, I could read them and then I would shift the act. And they had me, remember those jumpers that used to clip on to the door and you'd just bounce? My mom said that it was nonstop, that I would bounce incessantly, nonstop all day. And that somewhere around preschool in Grand Junction, Colorado, this doctor came in that, to talk about this ADHD thing. 
And all the teachers and all the other parents were looking at my mom like, yo, are you listening? Like they're talking about your kid. And my mom talks about bursting into tears, feeling like it was the first time that some expert doctor had described her child. Uh, it was in fourth grade that I remember going to a testing facility and going from room to room and lights and sounds and writtens and memories and all this type of stuff. And then I came out, I'm ADHD and learning disabilities. And that hit hard because I didn't know what it was. And bullying started around then too. And I remember a girl calling me retarded. Hmm. That name was just still, you know, socially acceptable. I guess it never was. Um, yeah. And how hard that hit. Like, I remember that moment of what it was like to be ostracized for being different. The medication Ritalin started soon after that. And, and you were how old then? Sorry, Aaron. I was in fifth grade, uh, you know, nine, so I'm. Or, no, 11. Nine, nine. 10, you know, 10, yep. sixth grade, 11, seventh grade, 12. What it was to me is that it was not normal that I was this thing that unless, and I remember people saying, did you take your meds? Teachers, parents, my friends, parents, did you take your meds? That I could not be excited. Whatever my version of excited was without somebody intervening with, did you take your meds? And that continued all the way into adulthood where, especially in Boulder, Colorado, where I am now, where people would be like, "Well, oh, you're so angry. And I'm like, I'm not angry. I'm passionate. Now I'm angry and it's your fault, but I'm angry because you said I was angry when really I'm just excited, energetic, and passionate. I'm God's caffeine buzz, man. That's what I am. I don't know what you are, but what ADHD to me was is that I'm not you and I don't belong in this group. And it was hard to find my group. It was hard to find my peeps. Wow. I love that. ADHD is I'm not you. That's the best thing I've ever heard yeah. on ADHD because everybody has their definition, right? But yeah. I love that. Now, did you on Ritalin, how, if you remember, some people don't remember some of these years, but how did you feel emotionally? How did you feel, uh, you know, internally on the medication versus off? Yeah, I, I, what I have, what I internalized from those years was it was the only way I could be around you. It was the only way I could get through school. I hate the concept of medicating children. I've worked, I, I've interviewed documentarians who have, who have you know, uh, uh, um, this, this, this medicating children. I've employed psychiatrists when I ran a treatment facility. Like medicating children is something that I have been around since I was 10 years old. What I remember is that that was my normal pill. That was my, I will say very easily, I, I think I made it through school because of Ritalin, because of medication. What I will also say was, man, was it a setup for later drug use and self-medication. It was a yeah. setup for me. Um, I'd, I'd love to talk about that because, and I may have shared this with you in the last 
conversation that we had in the interview for your podcast, I believe I did, uh, about Nadine Lambert, the researcher who did the 30 year yeah. Ritalin study, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for those of you who haven't heard that interview yet or uh, don't know about this, it was just basically she was disproving that this myth that only non-medicated, right, unmedicated children that, that have ADHD were supposed to be the ones getting into drugs and addiction and prisons, right? right. What she discovered is actually it was the opposite, which sounds like you're a, a living proof that for you having to depend on a pill, like you called it the normal pill, right, to function created a dependency, right? And then where did that go for you after? Well, it, I self-medicated with cannabis, LSD, and uh, alcohol for for 14 years. Uh, it started at age 12 with the neighbors down the street. My mom caught me the first time I ever got high and only said, don't let it run your life. Um, so I hid the fact that it did from her. Uh, it got really bad once I hit 18 years old. I was sexually assaulted my first year away at trade school. I went to acting school after high school, barely made it out of high school, skated out by the, by the skin of my teeth, much thanks to Jerry Kokora, a math teacher who said, Aaron is not going to be a mathematician, let him graduate. And I, and I give praise and thanks to him on the daily for that. Um, so you, you went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, right? That's right. That's right. I, I, a trained actor. When I, well, on stage was a place that my audacity, my energy, my ability to, my hypervigilance to be able to, to receive input, nonverbal input from other people. I can read an audience like nobody's business. I teach micro expressions to therapists. Like that's how well I've perfected that art of, of reading into another person's reactions to me. Um, so it, it, it serves an incredible purpose on stage or in front of a camera and stuff. So it was, a it was a place where I could be me and get a standing ovation versus, and I, I won state in, in uh, a debate in high school. I mean, I went to nationals in debate in high school, won state in, in dramatic interpretation and duet acting and humorous interpretation I, the moment I could be on stage, it didn't matter whether I was on the Ritalin or not. I had you because yeah. I could feel you. I could read you and remember my lines and remember my blocking and make up something new on the spot. Cause I was finally in a place where every aspect of my brain was being in, integrated. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of uh, actors, musicians, like artists in general probably have had that diagnosis or at least, have been singled out as kids that you're too much, you're too loud, you're too fast, you know, you're too yeah. crazy. And, and guess where some of them ended up. And in your case, you're, you're making a difference now. And I'm just curious, and I, I know this is not really a fair question, but where do you think you would have ended up if you, uh, well, twofold question, if you didn't have Ritalin, right? You said you made a, you might've not made it through school. Yeah. But then there was the, because of Ritalin, you ended up self-medicating. So what do you think would have happened to young Aaron if he hadn't made it to school? Yeah, I think I think I would have gone, and I, it's a great question. It's, it's a hard question, but I think I would have ended up as the kid who was always in trouble. And then I'd adjust, I think I'd ended up down that path anyway, because Similar, yeah. I, yeah, I grew up in a small town and the teachers were not tolerant. I was still, these were still boomer teachers and um, they were not tolerant. I did not grow. I grew up with a, an incredibly progressive family 
who was willing to to make sure I had what I needed, but not a not a school district. They they were not interested in in creating a space for me. Yeah. I'd end up in trouble in special ed and just felt stupid my whole life. Yeah, and you but mentioned the, some. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, the drug use. I mean that that I I traded out Ritalin for cannabis. Um, and and it, it got bad once I once the, the the sexual assault happened and the real pain of not having a bio father um, and and being bullied a lot as a kid and then the sexual assault I really took over I was ready to die on a pretty consistent basis and cannabis um, well when I was high I was happy when I was sober I was suicidal so yeah. a lot of smart people were telling me I should stop smoking pot but when I did I wanted to kill myself so. Mm. I didn't have the words to explain that. That yeah. took a while to resolve itself. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, and I think what you said, you said you didn't have a biological father. Is that right? Yeah. The guy who raised me, the guy who showed up and took me on still to this day, my dad, my mentor, my, the, 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 the day I told my parents, I was uh, an addict. Uh, my mom who was never a lack for words was stunned and, and, you know, just, just thrust into silence. And it was my dad who said, whatever you need, I'll do. I love you. That that was, that was the proof that what I was seeking love and acceptance had been seeking me. And that was a father's love. That thing wow. I was always looking for. I had, I just never saw it until that moment. So that's interesting. Cause one of the experts I interviewed, uh, Dr. Peter Bregan, he's a big, uh, you know, anti-medication. He's a big anti-pharma and by anti, he's not just a crazy doctor. He really has done years of research and he's sat on, uh, you know, he's been a witness to, to, uh, uh, court cases where pharma got sued and so forth. And he told me once it was really cute. He's like in his seventies now. And he said, you know, Roman, he said, what ADHD really is, it's like, he calls it the father absence uh, 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 father attention deficit syndrome, right? Wow. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, you know, why is it mostly boys? And I was like, oh, okay, I'm listening. But he went into this, this long story about like when fathers aren't really present, and I mean like present, not just there physically, it creates a need for attention, for nurture and presence from the masculine, right? Is that, does that ring a bell there for your situation? Good God, yes. I, I mean, the, the, you remember in Fight Club, Tyler Durden said, if our fathers were image of God and our fathers have abandoned us, then we have to assume God does not like us. And yeah. that to me has been, even to this day with my own spiritual path, this the father figure that I am most closely associated with that I feel called towards is absent. It's an absent father figure who's on his own journey, who's on his own life. He'll check in every now and then, but he doesn't intervene like, like the Christ consciousness intervenes or like the goddess intervenes. The, 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 the God that I feel most adapted to is a very judgmental uh, uh, witness who may or may not be present. And so you really got to be something special to get his attention. My mom asked me when I was a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my response was a fire truck. And the, the, as I, as I look back and now being a student of symbology and, and lecturing on, on archetypal symbolism and, and symbols itself, I get that now. But as a kid, I just wanted to be noticed 
And what I felt was I had a bio dad who never once, not once in my whole life reached out. Um, and then when I was big and loud and audacious, it was medicated. I don't, I don't look back and point fingers at doctors or parents for that one. I get it. I've run a school. I, I'm a, I'm an ADHD adult who really does see when in these past three months and, you know, having to shut down my treatment center because of property insurance of all things, man, because of fires in Colorado, because of global effing warming, my property insurance went from 20,000 to $470,000 a year and it killed my business. Wow. And and so, so I get it. I'm not one to look back and say, it was your fault. It was my bio father's fault. It was this, it was the doctor for putting it's my mom for putting me. I get what HDHD does to a relationship because these past three months, I has been hard on my wife because my stress and my, the overwhelm of this experience to have something I never thought I was going to do. And now I don't know how to live without to have that happen. Like I was right back into old patterns and, and I saw how hard it was on my wife who's going through what I'm going through. So yeah. I get it. I, I get why we medicate kids. I get why I was medicated. I get why teachers wanted to put me in a class where I could get individual attention. Yeah. I get why being a fire truck is still something I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I love that, by the way. That's like the ultimate attention getter, right? I always joke when when the Harleys go by, you know, they're revving up like, oh, oh, oh. I'm like, yep, that's how to get attention too, you know? Uh, what, what, you can't not pay attention to a fire truck. Yeah. Not only that, but it's on the way to something important. Exactly. And it's making and that's, a difference. That's also what I want to be. I want to yeah, yeah. be on the way to the life-saving moment. My brain's designed for it. I remember when I was a, I was a security officer uh, in, a, in a pretty rough point in Denver, Colorado. Um, rough point, like it was near five points. And there was a crack house across the street and there was a shooting on the front ramp. And a lot of us were armed security officers. And a Lamaze class was just being let out. And there were, we were also in shift change. And I was the sergeant so i was responsible for passing on shift change orders and everything like that we get a call from officer Ludi, you know uh shots fired front ramp so we all go running out this side i look as we come out this door i look at officer lloyd Ludi, and i say Ludi, where's the shooter and he points third floor corner window and i look up and i see a barrel come towards and towards all of us all of us security officers are standing in a group and he goes and the world just went pew. and I was home. I could see everything. I could hear the shots. I could see Lloyd protecting this pregnant woman. He was laying on top of her to shield her body. I looked down the row of my officers. Half of them have their guns out. And I realized in that moment, I got to write them up because this shots are coming from inside a building. We can't fire back. There's no reason for us to pull our weapons. I see a guy laying across the street over on my right, who's taking a, a, a cover behind this thing. And, and I notice his legs are sticking out and he can't move them. So I think he's already been shot. I got what he's wearing. I'm already keying my, uh, my radio to call for backup and call for police assistance. The shots stop. A car comes speeding out of the alley, not two minutes later. And I get the make the model, the license plate, that's my home. 
People say, why do you listen to heavy metal music? Because I understand it because this heavy metal flamenco dancing scream therapy that's going on in my head at all times must be nurtured, not denied and not medicated. It's the only way I can get through. And thank God I have a wife who can tolerate the fact that I have to stand and move and listen by not looking. And, and she still asks to this day and I get it. Are you listening to me? And I'm like doing jumping jacks in the, in the room going totally. I've heard every word you said can repeat it back and have all my solutions in a checkpoint to-do list. Do you want them or do you just want support? Should I just shut yeah. up now? Because I got to work with this or it's going to work against me. And I get that. And I don't take yeah. that. No. I, uh, but I am. What a beautiful story. I saw Michael Bay directing that movie that you were just sharing, you know, he's like <laughs> explosions and gunshots and slow motion. I saw it, man. I'm a visual thinker, right? And there's a, literally, I can, I remember the concrete behind me on the brick wall, on the yellow brick wall that was St. Joseph's hospital exploding. And in my mind registering that I'm not in danger. And if I am, I can duck down more, but I had more things to do than just go, <gasps> I'm being shot at. And my brain was like, no, oh, I got this. This that's is a, my awesome. environment. Yeah. That reminded me of uh, what you were saying, right? With your wife, you're doing stuff and you're <laughs> multitasking and she, right? You're jumping jacks. And, because my son, my 12 year old, he's the one who got diagnosed seven years ago when I called BS on the whole thing, started to, right? Did my research. He recently uh, picked up a butterfly knife, right? So he's like, oh, but it's totally, a, it's a trainer, right? Sure. So he's doing all this stuff right in front of my face and I'm watching him and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And he goes, dad, this is so relaxing. And I was like, what? He's like doing this and this is relaxing. And then it just hit me, you know, that's what he's talking about. When he's busy doing other stuff, his brain or himself, his nervous system calms down, right? Because the energy that he needs to get out is getting out. It's not stuck inside the body. It's not like, ah. Roman, when I am working, you know, I can't do it right now because the mic would pick it up. So not when I'm podcasting, but that's when I stand up. But when I'm working, I have a rock tumbler right there and I turn it on. I turn on heavy metal music on these, these beautiful speakers I have here. And then I listen to the Mulligan brothers on YouTube. The Mulligan brothers just edit together these motivational videos of sports stars and actors and politicians just saying one motivational thing after another to music. And so I have literally soft music with somebody talking, heavy metal music with somebody screaming and a rock tumbler. And I do this so I can read because wow. I have, I can't just be like brain. You just have to calm down and settle down. You cannot say that to me and expect me to comply. Yeah. ADHD. What I have is you can call it whatever the, if you want a disorder, a dis-ease, my brain thinks everything is of equal importance. That's how I see my ADHD. I do not prioritize what's going on around me. Yeah. I am not going to prioritize a teacher lecturing me on math problems over the bird that's outside the window, over this kid shifting his chair, over that girl who I think is cute, over my best friend who's sitting in the back row wearing pants that he wore yesterday. And how do I know that? Yeah. It's all important. And so I have to satisfy that piece. Yeah. I had to delete TikTok off of my phone. 
because I didn't feel like it satisfied my ADHD. I felt like it exacerbated it. I felt like I was just training my brain to only pay attention to something for 15 seconds. And that's not what I need. What I need to do is calm and smooth out the edges so I can focus on the center point. Yeah. And that's when, when parents bring me to work with their kids, when being an ADHD adult who taught a school with ADHD kids, it worked. Because I knew what they needed. I knew how they learned and how they listened. And if they're bouncing in their chair or flipping a butterfly knife around, I know they're listening. I know they're hearing every word I say. So I just keep talking and they do fine. Well, this reminds me of this uh, concept of, right? One size does not fit all, right? You see, I don't listen to heavy metal music. I don't have a rock tumbler. But I do listen to music and I, I will do a couple of things at the same time. I can do research on ADHD while I'm on a Zoom call uh, 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 learning about betrayal, trauma and sex addiction, right? Because they're close enough, they're, they're related, right? So I don't tune out fully, but then I can also still text someone. I can do all that and I will remember everything. I will take it in. I will feel, you know, everybody will feel that I was there. And if somebody says, oh, you're not paying attention, I may say, well, no, I was paying attention, but to two things right now. Yeah. That's maybe what you noticed, right? So I can relate to that. I think it's, we each have to find our way. What is, what is the way that allows our brain to function optimally, right? That's what everybody talks about nowadays, biohacking, you know, hack your brain and sure. be at your top performance. Great, but that's not a one size fits all. That's not a pill. Never was, never will be. School isn't, never will be. The, you know, when you and I spoke about, about your kids' experience and the work that you did to, that you, you and your parenting partner did to find this environment that allows them to thrive. My parents did that with theater. My parents did that with acting. They saw me thrive and said, okay, let's make sure that's always accessible. Um, the moment I found martial arts, my parents were 100% behind it. Yeah. We, I did not grow up with the TV, so I do not have the struggles with TV or video games that a lot of ADHD kids have. But all of my ADHD clients who do struggle with video games, I get it. And so when they're playing, you know what I do? I sit down with them and I connect with them while they're playing because they can have full conversations about unrelated things while they're doing just fine in the video game. So I don't need to pull focus. I have what I need as long as I can meet them where they are. Connection before correction. Yes, I love that. And that, that again brings up this point that I say often to experts who are so hell bent on it's an attention deficit. It's like, no, there's not a deficit. These kids can pay attention to what they want to, what they choose to, what they're passionate about. Then the expert says, well, huh, yeah, if we only lived in a world where you could always do what you love. And I'm like, yeah, what if? What if we could create a world where we do what we love all the time? Of course, you got to do your taxes, but that's when you hire an accountant. You don't go, right. oh, I don't want to do my taxes. I can't pay attention. You hire an accountant, <laughs> right? Or you get a, a, a buddy to do your homework because you hate algebra. Meanwhile, you get to focus on what you love. So it's not a deficit. It, it, it can no longer be defined as a deficit simply because we have scientific evidence that it's not a deficit, right? But we're still calling it that. No, yeah, it's a deficit as long as you want me to focus on you. It's not a def deficit as long as you understand that I'm focused on four things. If you expect me to memorize and remember 
everything from only one of the four things that that you want me to focus on, then the deficit is yours, not mine, because (laughs) I'm not going to do that. What I know about being an ADHD adult who taught ADHD kids very successfully in a school that I own. And remember, this is coming from someone who barely made it out of high school himself. I owned a school. I owned one of the top performing adolescent treatment centers in the United States. But when I got up there to teach these kids English, these are these are boys and girls who have stopped reading books. They're totally into social media, drugs, self-harm. They have, by and large, stopped their English studies. I got them back because when I got up there, I let them bounce. I let them get up and move. I let them walk away and sit across the room to get a different perspective if they needed to. And when I talk, I was God's caffeine buzz on stage. I did not see it as a chore to teach them something that I'm passionate about. And I let that passion come through English, martial arts, outdoor survival, emergency medicine, symbolism. If I'm teaching you one of these things, we're going to have a great time. You will focus just fine because I can pull focus. Yeah, I can. I, but we're going to be interactive. It, this is not the Aaron show when we're teaching English. This is a go that way. Say, so what questions do you have from last week? The kids don't remember last week. We're going to get on and say, let's watch this movie. How is this like your life? And suddenly, best class I ever taught, Roman. It, it happened six months ago. This was one of the most potent, powerful, impactful classes I've ever taught. As always in treatment with kids, when we're dealing with something, at some point, inevitably, the conversation's going to come up that weed isn't addictive. First of all, for everyone listening, I don't care. I know how I treated it. I acted like a junkie around it. So you saying me it's not addictive, it makes you sound like an asshole because I was a junkie around cannabis. Maybe you aren't. Well, that's one of those one size fits Maybe it fits you, but it don't fit me. So let's kill that argument right away. I don't care. But what the, what the conversation came up with is a boy said to me, George Washington grew hemp. And I said, no, he didn't. He goes, yes, he did. I read it in a history. And I said, no, George Washington did not grow hemp. His slaves grew it for him. And the kid goes, I mean, the whole class went dead. And he goes, George Washington had slaves? I said, yeah, and then practice corporal punishment on them too. And a girl says, how do you know? And I said, well, at the George Washington Masonic Memorial Museum in Alexandria, uh, I, I went there and I saw his ledgers. And the girl goes, they kept records of how they punished their slaves? And I said, yeah. And the boy who had originally brought it up goes, who else had slaves? So we sat down and we looked it up. And that, that led to a conversation about the global minority, white men, having power over the global majority, everybody else, and how that's possible. How did, a, how did the minority control the majority? And then it, it ended up, that class became about marketing. And by the end of that two hours of focused question in Q&A and me sitting in front of a computer with a screen showing them everything on my computer, we were talking about marketing and covert persuasion. And it was the most powerful class. Why? Because their questions drove the teaching. And at the end, not only did we have a powerful class, they understood covert persuasion. They, They had their conversations and opinions on racism heard and considered, and they led it. 
And that okay. was the power of willing to say, what do you want to learn? How do you want to learn it? And let's go that direction. And had I had that type of education, there's nothing I couldn't have learned had they taught it the way my brain learns. Yeah, that's a beautiful example because, you know, had you as the teacher, right, squandered that inquiry and had you stopped at, well, yeah, weed is illegal in these states and it's legal in these states and it's a drug, it's a gateway drug and, you know, don't do it, make sure, you know, yes, it's natural, but, you know, they would, it would have been like, oh, okay, well, yeah, yeah, let's talk about something else, right? But you went down, you went all the way to the power of marketing, persuasion, propaganda, I'm sure, right? Which then brings it actually into the current times because that's all still present, right? The power over other people and persuasion, propaganda versus don't do drugs. <laughs> we had a history class. We had social marketing class. We had a sociology class. We had a psychology group. We had anything we wanted because what we know in the world of treatment and working with kids is that it's connection before correction. It's alliance before compliance. Get on the same page. And if you don't know what that page is, get to know your student because the students aren't, they don't care how much, you know, they, they want to know how much you care. Yeah. That's, that's how you reach a client, a student, a, uh, someone who's purchasing your product. Yeah, I think you, Aaron, you just gave me the title for the episode. It's connection over correction or before oh. correction. I think that's great because really that's what it boils down to, whether it's your father that couldn't be present, right? I always say couldn't be because either people weren't aware enough or they weren't taught to be or they couldn't physically be, they just couldn't be present, right? And then for others like teachers not to be present to how a child's brain works or what that child needs in terms of education, the type of education, all the way to uh, politicians who are not present to what their people need, right? It's, it's, it's just, it, if the connection is there, then we don't need to correct it. Yeah. Conne connection will handle 90% of the issue. Connection is context, like the data, once you're connected, that's content. Context is everything, right? You could have the best content for an episode, a show, a documentary, but if it's, if you're not in there with good editing, if you're not in there with good cinematography, if you're not in there with good directing, it's not going to matter how important the information is. Nobody will watch it because the context sucks. The content, content is a PowerPoint presentation. Context as a performance of material. And that is everything, whether it's teaching, whether it's entrepreneurship, whether it's a documentary and a movie, or this is, this is, we're a world of context and we substitute content. The data is second to the context of the data. I agree with that. Now, Aaron, tell me, what are you up to now? I want to, I want to hear what you're creating out there, especially how parents uh, that might have teenagers that uh, what we call with uh, behavioral issues or, you know, uh, addictions and so forth. Like what, how can they find you? What are you creating and, and what do you want to leave with them? My niche market are parents whose teenagers are really struggling. These, this is, and I'm talking multiple suicide attempts and OD, couple hospital visits. Um, they're self-harming and the consequences don't matter. Haven't been to school because of video games or depression and anxiety. It's an underserved market, right? So the first thing I have is uh, my podcast, Beyond Risk and Back. 
right? At-risk behavior was six months ago. Now we're beyond risk. Now we've, we've actually seen some life and limb behaviors and we're terrified and traumatized ourselves as parents and we don't know what to do. Um, that's what my show is for, bringing in the experts like you. You're on the show talking about ADHD and your documentary that you've got. Um, because I, we need to help these parents who don't know how to help their teens. The second thing I have is on Facebook, I have a group with almost 1,800 parents now um, called Parenting Teens That Struggle. And again, it's been a, an attraction for parents whose kids are beyond risk. These are really struggling families. Um, obviously, the podcast and the Facebook group, Parenting Teens That Struggle and Beyond Risk and Back, are free. Because we just, I've run a treatment facility for 12 years. We cannot just provide resource and opportunity for recovery to people with good insurance policies or people with lots of cash. Every parent needs access. Every parent needs access. What we did really well as a treatment facility is work with the parents. We did cool stuff with kids. We did awesome stuff with kids. We were successful with kids. But the reason why we had the results and were given top 100 innovator of healthcare and top 50 healthcare provider in the US was because of what we did with parents. Our parents were expected to change, not just here's my kid, fix them, I'll see you in four months. To that end, I've taken everything I've ever taught a parent and put it in a parenting masterclass on brabapp.com, B-R-A-B-A-P-P.com, brabapp.com. And it is 57 sessions of a parent masterclass. And it's 37 bucks. I just want parents to have access to resource and recourse. It's in three layers, the red, the yellow, the green, like a traffic light. Red is full stop, beyond risk. Yellow is warning, at risk. And green is, okay, we're going, but it could be great. What am I doing wrong? What do I need to do better? So it, all three classes are about parent changes, not kid changes. Kid changes will follow parent changes. I love that. I love that. And now I just started to interrupt here, but that's something that we've learned in the seven years of research. Most of the top expert we've interviewed have pointed to the same thing. When, when children are brought in for quote unquote ADHD treatment, right? Intervention, whatever you want to call it. The parents is where the change needs to happen first. Yes. And I've heard this now on a weekly basis, and I'm, I'm so happy to hear this again, because it's really parental uh, parenting slash relationship therapy that will have the space, the environment transform, and then the kid transforms, right? We have to understand that the, the language of struggle, behavioral health, and mental health, and addiction that we let's just call it the recovery language, right? That recovery language and struggle language are two different languages. And if at your home, you're speaking the struggle language, let's just call it English, that, that at home, you speak English, you're an English speaking family at home. But then you send your child to treatment or therapy or an IOP or a PHP or a therapist or a coach or a mentor, and they start speaking French a recovery language. What's the child going to speak at home? 
That's what we forget is whether it's seven years or 18 years, the child's behavior is the family language manifest. And so if the child's going to speak a recovery language at home, the family needs to learn that language too. And I, I, I'm willing to bet that what I'm about to say makes sense. The children learn to speak from you. Now, this is not blaming the parents. This is just saying, parents, everything you've done has gotten you to this point. Yeah. So change what you're doing. Speak a new language. Speak a language of recovery. Not, you need to do things differently, kid. But, hey, kid, we're going into recovery as a family. I'm getting help. I'm doing my work. I'm getting help for my marriage. Dad and I, mom and I are getting some support. We're going to learn how to do things differently with you because I can see what we've done with you has gotten us here. Yeah. So we're all going to make changes. Now your part's going to look like this. You're going to therapy. You're going to this special course. You're going to start seeing this dude who likes to throw axes and listens to metal music. And you're going to throw axes with him, <laughs> whatever it is, but whatever. Yeah. the child is not the patient. The child is a participant. Yeah. The parents teach the language. I love that because my wife and I are doing the same thing, right? We have the three simple steps of our, project book whatever you want to call it all the items have that same which is first is shift your perspective yeah. two is heal your shit and it's for the parents yeah. three honor your child right and honor your child means you let them unfold whatever type of education they need whatever uh you know they where they feel happy like your parents with acting you know uh things like that and one thing we're realizing the pushback coming from parents today uh you mentioned the word blame it is a difference between blame and responsibility. Right. We're not blaming the parents, just like yourself. We're saying it's not, you're not to be blamed, but you can be responsible for this change happening. And that starts with you, the parent. It's not, you know, I hate when experts uh, laugh it off out there and they say, well, <laughs> some think that ADHD is due to bad parenting. That's just not true. Uh, well, that's not true, but it's, it's not, it's a part of the, the, the puzzle, right? Because it is due to unconscious parenting. If you're not willing and conscious enough to make changes in the family, then I would say it is kind of due to bad parenting, bad meaning unconscious, right? Uh, because if we don't wake up and we don't, we're not responsible that we create the environment for that our children grow up in, then if we don't change, they don't change. And then we give them a pill because they have a problem, right? And I think we can also accept and validate with parents that you're still living in an environment that is telling you that the ADHD kid is a setup for failure, addiction, and, and ending up in jail. And then somewhere along the way, you realize that Richard Branson is ADHD and that Elon <laughs> Musk is ADHD. And how is it that we are either headed for the big house or headed for the rich house? It's not that black and white to be someone with ADHD. Right. What it is, is that this world, this environment very much reinforces ADHD activity. You can shift. You don't have to finish anything. You can just move on. Let it go. Here's TikTok. Here's Facebook. Scroll, doom scroll or hope scroll. You're just moving through everybody's lives in a moment and only paying attention. Well, welcome to my brain. That the, my brain has been doom scrolling or hope scrolling since the moment I was born. And the medication to try to get me to focus on one thing is a failed experiment because at best, 
It only did it temporarily and taught me nothing. Right. What taught me what I have now is the ability to accomplish what I want. I'm very financially successful because not only did I have a, a respected treatment center, I also invest in the stock market and my wife and I own a lot of real estate. We're starting a, a camper van rental business and I run parenting groups and I travel all over the world lecturing on martial arts and uh, symbolism. I'm still really ADHD folks. <laughs> and it's been my superpower. Yeah. Because I had parents who say, well, if this is what you got, let's show them how to use it. And they did. Nice. I love that. And that's what connected us at the beginning. I remember you uh, said that, you know, ADHD is your superpower. And I always believed the same for myself and, and my son. Right. And I believe part of it, the fact that it's a superpower, part of that means that you're not limited by it. You're not seeing it as a disorder. You're not seeing it as a doomsday prophecy, but you're just using the name, the label in that moment. So people know what you're talking about. But really what we're saying is we have a different kind of brain and it, and it started to, the brain started to form in itself into the kind of brain it is because of trauma and childhood experiences and other things. Right. But we just have a different kind of brain because there's not one size fits all. Every brain's different. There's not a normal brain. So having that different kind of brain is what I'm hearing is you say, like my superpower is actually to use that brain to get stuff done that you can get done. And there's certain things you and I can't do. So we hand it to other people. Yeah, I do. Right? And there is, make sure you teach yourself and your kids that there are some things that this ADHD does become a kryptonite too. And whether it's sitting down and focusing on the numbers so I can do my taxes um, or sometimes waiting to talk, yeah. right? That, that, that there's a kryptonite to this. And I'm very fortunate to have a wife who's been able to see it and hold space for that. And because of that, I've become sensitive enough to when I am butting into the conversation or trying to become the focal point of the conversation or dropping the ball on agreements that we made because I wasn't fully focused on the agreement and I forgot what was said that I can ask for a redo and I can apologize and be grateful for her patience and for her attitude. Uh, ADHD yeah. kids, we can be self-centered. When we grow up, we can be centered in ourselves. One of those is pretty frustrating to be around. And one is when this whole world was going crazy, I could center back into this person that I am and say, I'm going to be okay. I just got to do what I know how to do. Yeah, I love that. And, and you just brought that piece back to myself because I'm the same way. I, in chaos, in the midst of chaos, I can look at my wife and my kids and go, we're going to be so fine. Don't worry. This is going to all work out because I can feel that we're heading in the right direction. I'm, I'm taking you there with me, right? There's that certainty. And I think I always say, you know, impulsivity is needed to calibrate our intuition. Because if your impulsivity is taken away from you or medicated, how are you going to calibrate your intuition? How are you going to make mistakes and learn from them? Right. Right. Yeah, I, my hobbies have always been outdoor survival, martial arts, and emergency medicine. And people in, in, their, in their wisdom have said, geez, those are your hobbies. What is it that you think is going to happen? And my response is nothing. I know martial arts, outdoor survival, and emergency medicine. I'm ready. 
Like, and, and that, that feeling of readiness that when the chaos happens, I'm going to be okay is because I've been living in the chaos since I was born. Stop trying to yank me out of it or medicate me out of it. And again, I, I have to say, I, I know that I made it through school with that medication. I can look back and say that too is real, but by God, try everything. It's got to be pills and skills. You cannot look at one and say, that's the be all end all and the other is bad. The, the skills that I learned still keep me alive to this day, that I can be audacious and, you know, see the risk, but move beyond the risk and to see the opportunity that's behind that risk and do a very quick analysis of whether it's safe or not, and then take the risk and then be reminded that there's actually other people in my life and that risk involved them. And I've got to turn around and make those repairs and be sensitive enough to make those repairs. Well, this is still a real experience. It's not my dysfunction. It's just my function. It's not my dis-ease. It's just me. And you can call it aggressive. You can call it passionate. You can call it Oh, why are you so angry? And I can just tell you, it's none of those. I'm just God's caffeine buzz. And if you don't understand a caffeine buzz, then you don't understand me. And that's okay, because I'm not going to change for you. And that, me learning how to accept me as I am, because the medication, because people couldn't handle me, that's hard for people with ADHD. That hyper, that hypervigilance, to, to, to how people are being around me and, and I, am I accepted? This criticism sensitivity dysphoria that I possess, this inability to focus and this unwillingness to stick around into an environment that is not beneficial to me, I've turned them all into powers. Yeah. And if you don't like it, tough. Because if you sit in a space with me and I recognize and realize that you can't grok my energy, I'm gonna dip. You can stay. I'm a go. I love that. I love that. Not that I want to dip now, but I think we've uh, we've had our hour of chatting together, and I just want to end with with a big acknowledgement uh, for for the work you've done with teens, and just for the the inspiration you are. I can hear it in your voice. My listeners can feel it and hear it. I'm sure, and I want to make sure that uh, we're going to have your your links in our show notes so they can reach out to you, parents who are interested to uh, uh, take your courses and join your groups. And I think uh, there's so much value there just from this this conversation we had. I can feel it, and I can't wait to beam it out into the universe. So. Well, Roman, thank you so much for the opportunity. Again, your show is amazing. It's with the producers as, as we're talking right now, it's with the producer now. And cool. so we'll be getting it out, but it's just, it's great to be connected to you. The documentary you've got going on the work you've done with your kid, the conversation we had. Um, and then of course the, when, when you talk about that woman, uh, Nadine, um, yeah. and, and her work as soon as, I mean, we were on the show and I was looking it up while we were talking and, Boy, did that pull my focus that night. I really looked into what she had said and done and mm -hmm. people get, people got to see what she, what she it's, had realized. And then to suddenly die in a car accident, you're like, oh, come on. Right. Before come it was published. On. It's like, come really? 30 year study. Okay. Where's, on. where's the study? Oh, we, we might've shredded it at the university. Oops. Oh, oh, come on. Like it's no. just, it's for just our listeners. Hilarious. 
We're not saying there was any foul play. I'm not saying that there's a giant conspiracy. No, 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 never, never. Um, but Aaron, we're going to continue this dialogue, I'm sure. I would love to have you back on uh, for a part two at some point. Anytime. But it's been a pleasure, and thanks for making time to, to be on. Thank you, Roman.